All right, so today we look at the final fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. And I thought it would be fitting for us to return to a very classic illustration here at Heritage, which is the filet and drive through burger illustration. Y'all okay with that? Or or y'all have had had too much food? Or you ready for some beef action? When I know that I'm having filet, which could be today, maybe, I don't know, I can reject the offer of the drive through burger. A lot of times over the years you've told me, but the drive through burger is cheaper, it's more accessible, and I respond and say, well, that's kind of the point, to train your body to want cheaper, more accessible things. But when I know that I'm having a filet, I can say no to the immediate gratification of the drive-through burger. We call this delayed satisfaction. The future experience of satisfaction in filet is a far greater experience than the immediate quick satisfaction that you're offering to me through the drive-through burger. That's a classic heritage illustration, right? I don't need to give in to the lesser offer of satisfaction because I know that a better offer is waiting for me. The dilemma is, is that naturally you and I do not believe that the better offer is Christ Jesus, which is why we sing that song a moment ago. Power, looks, money, acclaim, we all think it's better than Christ Jesus naturally. Can I literally right now eat a cheaper and quicker option and convince myself it's better that I do it that way. Filet is so expensive, such a high cost, right? But that experience will not be as good as filet. But I did recently, about a month ago, went through a drive through with someone, and I was astounded at the prices of that cheap drive through burger. It's not cheap. In our classic illustration, Jesus has always been and always will be that filet. I don't know if you figured that out yet. Jesus is the filet. When I experience Jesus, when I get to taste Jesus as the ultimate feast for my soul, this is what begins to happen, among 10,000 other things. I begin to reject the lesser calls of satisfaction in my life. The cheap calls, the quick calls, the instant calls of satisfaction in my life. When the call for immediate and cheap satisfaction is heard, I can then think back to that last experience of filet and say, I think I'll pass. That's self-control. And that's what we're after this morning in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit indwells you and I as Christians to grow the self-control that Jesus secured for us through his death and through his resurrection. Do you realize that's one of 10,000 reasons why Jesus died for you? To create his self-control inside of you. Because naturally, we don't care about self-control. Today, what we're going to do is this. We're going to contrast self-control with the American value of personal control. Then we're going to clarify, what is the end for which God created us? Why are you not a monkey or a basset hound? Why are you a human being? What is the end for which your creator designed you? 
Why did Jesus take on flesh and save us? And what is the Holy Spirit doing in our lives? And then we're going to take a look at some challenges. To whatever that end is, whatever that reason is, what are those challenges in life for you, for me, and for Christ Jesus our Lord? Then we're going to finish our series right where we started, in Galatians 5, to see that the Christian life is indeed, let me make it as crystal clear as possible, the Christian life is a life of struggle. It is a life between the flesh and the spirit that are in opposition to each other. It's not all rainbows. Heaven and nature sing. It's not. And that's okay. Let's get started with our proposition. Today you're going to see that the Holy Spirit works in the Christian. That is you. And here's what happens. His work simplifies your life mission. And he simplifies your life mission by doing this in you. By creating Jesus' self-control in you. That's what I pray that the Holy Spirit illuminates in you today, as I prayed for you moments ago. You know that there are seasons of life, like the American cultural holy day, holiday season, when life doesn't become simpler, it becomes more complex, right? If you're not there yet, just give it a week or so. Some of you already experienced it with family getting together last week. Like, this is complicated. But the work of the Holy Spirit, in contrast, is meant to simplify our lives, even in the most complex seasons that we experience. The Holy Spirit simplifies your life mission. Your life mission is why you wake up every day. Your life mission is the reason why God created you, the reason why you're a human being and not a basset hound. Sometimes, if you're honest, your life mission isn't always the reason why God created you. Can we be honest with each other? You struggle with that? Okay, me too. God created you to glorify Jesus and to enjoy Jesus forever. He is the well that won't run dry. So I have to ask you this morning as we begin, what is the reason that you wake up every day this morning? Why are you going to wake up tomorrow? Let's consider some options this morning. Your life mission could be your marriage, right? You live to create a better life for your spouse. Your life mission could be your family. That precious thing that you hold, you want to create a better life for him or her than the life that you had when once you were held in that position. It could be to make money to provide for the life that you intend for those people that you care about. Your life mission could be this great philanthropic cause. You want to make this world a better place than the one that you were born into. Heritage, listen to me. All those things are good things. I'm not going to diminish that. These are good things, sweet things, satisfying things. But they are not the chief end by which God created you. They are not the chief reason why you are a human being and not a bass and hound. These things are not your ultimate mission. So we ask the question, so what is the end? What is the reason? Why did Jesus die for you? What did he secure for you? And the short answer is eternal life. In John 10, which we've been looking at several times in our fruit series, Jesus made it clear that he's the good shepherd, 
that he lays down his life for his sheep, the sheep of his pasture. He lays down his life so when the wolf comes, when death comes, when our enemy comes, it devours him instead of you. And that he does all of this so that his sheep could have eternal life with him. The Holy Spirit's complex work in our salvation, in our redemption, it's complex for him, but what it does for us, it simplifies our lives. The Holy Spirit does this by growing Jesus' self-control, his control over his body, his flesh, into you. So right now, let's contrast personal control with self-control. During our faithfulness week in the fruit series, we took a look at the top two American values that universities, when they are tasked by our government to create orientation classes for those coming into our country, this is what they learn. This is what it means to be American. Do you remember that? And we learned two things. The number one value is individualism. By far, what, what contrasts the West from the East is a desire for individualism. The East is more community-oriented. The West is more individual-oriented, especially America. Then we learned about personal control. Personal control is the belief that you can control your life, that you can control your actions, that you can influence and somehow change your environments, your circumstances, and the people that are in your life. Doesn't that sound like God a little bit? Personal control, ironically, forces you to focus on external, outside factors instead of internal, inside factors. Personal control really isn't that personal. Self-control helps you focus on the inside. Self-control is this. It is the character of Jesus that controlled his flesh when it fought against his mission. And I just want you to think about two examples for a moment before we dive in to 1 Corinthians 9. Think back to after Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. What happens next? The very next sentence tells us that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and to be tempted by Satan himself. What? That's mind-boggling. Let's think about one of the 10,000 reasons why this happened. Satan tempted Jesus to give up on his mission. He showed him the glory of Jerusalem, the glory of the world. He tempted him through his appetites. He tempted him through authority, which all of us struggle with. Jesus was able to reject Satan's call for immediate gratification. If you just bow down to me, I'll give you that bread. If you just bow down to me, I'll give you the world. Now think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' flesh was weak, right? It's after the, the Lord's Supper. They sing some hymns. They go up to Mount of Olives. They come down, and there's this garden coming back in Jerusalem. He takes Peter, James, and John and says, Stay up with me. I am so anxious to the point of death. Stay up with me. Pray with me. They fall asleep, right? And he's alone to pray. Blood is seeping through his pores. And he prayed to his father to let the cup of suffering 
the bearing of your sins and my sins, your sufferings and my sufferings, taking on the cross, taking on our punishment to pass from him. Despite this, Jesus prayed, your will be done. Jesus' mission, the very reason why he took on flesh in Bethlehem, was to save his people from their sins by taking them upon his shoulders as he endured the wrath of God at Golgotha. The night before the cross, Jesus' body, Jesus' flesh, didn't want to do it. Do you get that? Let this cup pass from me. His spirit and his flesh were in opposition. Yet, by the end of the three-time prayer, Jesus said, nonetheless, let your will be done. He took the cup and he put it to his mouth. That is self-control. That is self-control. Today we're going to see that the self-control of Jesus is needed for you as a Christian. That it simplifies your life mission. Because it is our nature and our external temptation to believe that power, looks, money, authority is better than the Lord Jesus. And it's not. It's a lie. We need the self-control of Jesus so that we can simplify our life's mission. It's a good thing to give gifts to the people that you love over these next several weeks. That is a good thing, Heritage. But that's not the true goal of Christmas. You know, those pesky Lutherans developed that just to engage children a little bit more in the holiday season. You understand that, right? This good desire to give good gifts to the people that you love should not come at the expense, literally and metaphorically, to you living out the life mission by which God created you in Christ. This means it shouldn't come at the expense of radical generosity at Christmas. Something that traditionally churches in the West struggle with. If you talk to any church, any pastor, when does radical generosity go out the window? Right now. Think about this for a moment, Heritage. Christmas means that Jesus, the king, became a pauper. Do you get that? King became slave. Rich became poor. Up came down. Life took on death. Do you see that? Christmas is three wise men, three rich men, giving gifts not to their children, but to strangers. Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. If you value personal control over self-control, you are going to be tempted to give up this thing called radical generosity when the culture in your body is forcing you and telling you to focus on your own. Tragically, you will get through another Christmas season, and despite your best efforts today of making it joyful and bright, you will not feel the joy of generosity that motivated Jesus to turn from king to slave and three wise men, three rich men to give up their gifts to this blessed family. And that's what today is about. And let's begin with 1 Corinthians 9. Let's go to first, our first point. You're going to see that you are to persevere to the end by exercising self-control. This is how you get to the end by which Christ Jesus created you, saved you, died for you. 
It's all about self-control. Jesus' desire for you as a Christian is to persevere to the end. And he is, his language is so strong. He says, those who endure to the end will be saved. The final future act of salvation. And I've said this before on Wednesday nights, and you have freaked out. And I'm going to say it again. You are not yet saved. You were saved. You are saved. You are being saved, and you will be saved. But you are not yet saved. Jesus says those who endure to the end will be saved. Salvation is much more complicated than the 19th century American revivalism of altar calls and salvation prayers. This is what Jesus died to secure for you. He died to secure your endurance. His spirit indwells you to grow his character into you. We've been feasting on this for Wednesday nights for the past couple months. Jesus didn't die to give you his spirit, to give you some extraordinary gifts. Unless you assume and conclude that these extraordinary gifts are not tongues and healing, but love, joy, peace, patience. Amen? Okay, good, good. So Paul writes to these Greek Christians, these Corinthian Christians, to help them understand the relationship between self-control and endurance, self-control and perseverance. So let's get started with verse 24. Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all race to win? Only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Paul's being a good pastor right here. He's contextualizing. Paul uses the idea of Olympic athletes, something very fresh, near, and dear to these Greeks, to teach these Christians about self-control, about perseverance, and what it's going to take to get to the end. In a marathon, many may run the race, but only one wins the prize. Unless you're in Western culture today, everybody's a winner, right? Okay. Here's the thing. Paul concludes... Here, that you must run. Athletes must run in such a way to win. Not second place, first place. Here's the reality, though. You know that Paul's not a track coach, right? What's he doing here? These Corinthian Christians are not marathon runners. What's going on here? Paul is using an analogy. He is contextualizing. He's trying to point to something that these Greek Christians would understand, and they love their Olympic games. Paul's a pastor, not a track coach. These Christians are his church, not his athletes. So what is Paul trying to teach? Well, let me begin by asking this. Paul makes clear that only one person can win this race. One person can win this marathon. So we ask, who is the only person who has run this race called life to the end and he won the prize? What is your answer today? Oh, what a wonderful child. Yes. I don't know where that came from, William. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we sang it a long time ago. Many people have tried to walk on their own, run this race called life on their own in hopes of winning whatever objective that is out there at the end of their life. But only Jesus accomplished this successfully. 
The call for you today as a Christian is to walk, is to run in such a way that you get to the end and you win. Let's look at verse 25 now. So Paul continues and says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Here is our final fruit of the Spirit. Self-control isn't used many times in the New Testament. Paul says, all who compete in the games must exercise self-control in all things. Self-control is essential before, during, and after an athletic competition. So think it for a moment about the Olympic Games, an Olympic athlete. Thankfully, this Greek tradition spread, right? We still do Olympics today that started with a race in a town called Marathon in Greece. Self-control is essential. But here's the reality. The life of an athlete, any athlete, an Olympic athlete especially, is agonizing. In fact, the Greek word for compete that is used here, what Olympic athletes do, I just want you to listen to this for a moment. The Greek word is agonizomenos. Do you hear that? Agony. That means we all agonize. That's what agonizomenos means. We all agonize through this. That is the life of an Olympic athlete because they are running for a particular end. Here's a reality for them. There are many things that their bodies want, but they say no to it. You don't think that Olympic athlete wants that 2 a.m. drive through burger? You don't think that Olympic athlete wants another puff, another substance to make them feel calmer so they can handle the day? You don't think the Olympic athlete wants that? There are many things an Olympic athlete can do that will hinder and cripple their ability to compete. Eating a drive through burger every day may be immediately satisfying, and then they can be pragmatic and apply the cost savings from filet to their savings account. You can twist anything. But it would hinder their ability to compete later. So what does the Olympic athlete do? No, not going to do it. In this moment, do you realize they don't need personal control? Let me control people in my life. Let me control circumstances. Always pointing, they're the fault, they're the fault, they're the fault. They don't need personal control at 2 a.m. when their body says, feed me, Seymour. They need self-control. Do you get that? But culture is always a derivation of the biblical standard. Groping, perhaps, to be God and to reach for God, but they fall short. They need self-control over their appetites, over their bodies. Because the problem is not the drive through burger. The problem is what Dr. Keller calls misordered desires. Well, he calls it that because Augustine calls it that. And he loves Augustine. And I love Keller and Augustine. Misordered desires is putting immediate pleasure in whatever it is for you above the goal by which God created you. It is human nature to light this thing on fire and just ruin it all, right? 
It is human nature to be working towards something and you do one thing that throws it all away. That's the very concept of like Greek tragedy, right? There's this one undoing for this character. Some personal flaw he could not get control of. And life falls apart. And then we do all of that. Not for filet, but for drive through burger. But Paul says this. He says Christians are engaged in a greater competition than these athletes. The Christian is engaged in a greater goal than this marathon runner. Christians are in a race of a lifetime with eternal consequences. Do you realize that? That will make that one momentary lapse not even be like a speck of sand on the seashore. I can't imagine what's smaller than that compared to eternity. Paul's point is this. The secular athlete can do this. And if the secular athlete can do this, because they too are created in the image of God with a broken and beautiful capacity of his character. And if a secular athlete can do this, how much more should the Christian do this? How much more should the Christian say no to all things, everything that hinders the ability to run in such a way to get to the end? And I fear that many people in church don't have the self-control that Paul is speaking to here. I think that they're eating the drive through burger with no thought on how it is hindering them from living the Christian life in such a way that they will get to the end. Many of you asked me and pushed me to speak more clearly and plainly, and here it goes. Here it goes. There are people, maybe even in this church, who say and believe they are Christians, but they have zero self-control over their flesh. Is that plain enough? Okay. They follow their desires for their end more than God and his desires. And it can be creepy because sometimes, depending on your crazy desires, it can look like religion. But given enough time, one little deviation will show a world of difference. You get that? As long as religion does something for you intrinsically, doesn't get your parents mad, you're cool with your family, I'll just keep doing it. Christians are the ultimate Olympic athlete. Do you believe that? Me too. The Holy Spirit is creating self-control in them to run in such a way to finish the race and win. Now look at Paul's next statement. He says, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Secular Olympic athletes display intense, God-given, because they're image bearers, self-control, so they can win a wreath. So they today can win a medal. So they can win glory for their country. And how many countries have failed over human history? They give their lives for wreaths, for medals, and for glory. Paul says that reward, that prize is temporary. It is perishable. And Paul's argument is, 
How much more should the Christian who is engaged in activity with far greater complications and consequences should do this? Because we are striving for something that's not perishable, but imperishable. If the Olympic athlete can master their bodies, can master their appetites to say no, no thank you, to the lesser pleasures that's going to disqualify them, how much more should Christians master their bodies, master their appetites, and say no to the lesser pleasures of this world that they think is better than Christ Jesus, but in the end will disqualify them because they won't make it to the end. You see, what I'm asking that God would do a work in you is this, is that the Holy Spirit would illuminate your heart truly to know that eternity is a far better prize than your temporary high. Your temporary feel good. Do you believe that Jesus is better? That he is better than the lesser pleasures that you may be currently basing your life on? Now, once again, so I'm not too harsh, being a husband and a wife is a good thing. Being a parent and taking care of kids is a good thing. Being involved in some great cause on this planet is a good thing. Giving gifts to those that you love is a good thing. But it's not ultimate. It's not better than Christ Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit's work to illuminate you to see this. So right now I want to talk about challenges to self-control. And towards this, I want us to turn to a letter that many people think that Paul wrote, though we don't know. I've promised you that before my time is done here at Heritage, we will go through this book. This is the letter to the Hebrews in the 12th chapter. We often use this verse because this is a part of our plan as Heritage Christians to help us fight suffering and sin. Let's take a look at Hebrews 12, verse 1. The writer says, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's only two places in the New Testament where this imagery is used. Paul used in Corinthians, and it's used here. That's why some people think that Paul wrote this, right? Because preachers use the same illustrations over and over again. Okay. The Hebrews writer compares the Christian life to a race as well, and he tells us about two challenges to finishing the race to enduring to the end of this race. And the first we see are encumbrances. Do you see that? There are things that weigh down runners. Have you ever watched Boston Marathon or some sort of Olympic marathon going on? Have you seen what these runners wear? Next to nothing. Why? Because they don't want to put anything on their bodies. As a reflection, they don't put anything in their bodies that will disqualify them from getting to the end and winning. So what are the encumbrances as a Christian? And we know what they are, right? Suffering, sorrow, grief, struggle. Now the second challenge that the Hebrews writer mentions is entanglements. I think of Shelob's lair 
and Frodo trying to get through this lair to continue his journey to Mordor, and he can't because he's stuck in these webs. He's entangled in these webs. Why did Tolkien do that? To let you know of a particular entanglement you have on your journey to the end. Not Shelob, but sin. And as we've been saying for weeks now, sin is believing that you can live one nanosecond. That wasn't even a nanosecond. One nanosecond without God. Sin is believing that someone or something is more enjoyable than Christ Jesus. And sin entangles you and stops you from enduring and finishing the race. So the question you've got to be asking is this. How do we endure? How do I endure as a Christian? How does this church endure? How does Christ's church on this planet endure? And the Hebrews writer tells us in verse 2, he says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Can you think of a greater medal or wreath than that? At the right hand of God. And men, we now know, because we went through kindred and Daniel together, this is ancient of days giving son of man a throne and glory and dominion of people of all languages and tribes that belong to him forever. Then nothing can diminish his kingdom. That's this. Can you think of anything better? But here's the thing, Heritage. Jesus is the prize. He is better than a perishable wreath that's going to wither. Jesus ran the same race that you are running. Do you realize this? It is your pain and your suffering that makes you believe that nobody knows the trouble I'm in, right? That's indicative of pain. More about that in January. Jesus was challenged with the same encumbrances and the same entanglements that you are challenged with. He took on the encumbrances and entanglements of every Christian on the cross, yet he endured. How was Jesus able to do this? Do you think he was popping that pill or putting in that substance or having that drink or going to that drive through burger at 2 a.m.? No. It was joy. Do you see that? It was the joy that was waiting for him at the end. That's how he endured entanglements and encumbrances. Jesus fixed his eyes on greater joy when the encumbrance and the entanglement tempted him to give up on his mission. And if you are a Christian, the same spirit now indwells you. You get that? Jesus is that gold medal. Jesus is that imperishable wreath. As a Christian, there are real things, and I am not diminishing it. I'm not diminishing your struggles and your sorrows and your sins. I'm not. I'm just trying to legitimize them. I'm trying to make them plain as day. There are real things that are going to encumber you and entangle you as a Christian. This is the gospel. This is Christianity. They are going to threaten your ability to endure to the end. The Holy Spirit indwells you to provide you with that same self-control that Jesus had to say no to these things, that even a fallen, broken, beautiful Olympic athlete can do. 
That's what he wants to do in you. Jesus said those who endure to the end will be saved. And Jesus died to give you self-control, the fruit of the Spirit that will help you endure to the end. So let's get to application now. Let's put a bow on the fruit series so we can get to Advent. Here's our application today. In response to this beautiful truth, the Holy Spirit's work of self-control in us, this is what we need to do today. We need to bring these desires under control of the Holy Spirit. And I believe we have to first say, yes, I too have misordered desires. And bring them to the Holy Spirit right now. You have two paths before you, Heritage. You can embrace America's value of personal control. You can commit to a life of controlling your environment, controlling your circumstances, and controlling your relationships, the people in your life. Or you can embrace Jesus' value of self-control that he died to create in you. When the spirit and the flesh clash, Christians yield. We yield to the Holy Spirit by saying no to those lesser pleasures when they come our way. Because they're going to entangle us, they're going to encumber us, and hamper our ability to run and endure to the end. Let's finish up Paul's teaching on this. Let's get back to 1 Corinthians now in verse 26. Therefore, he's concluding, he's applying right now. What does he do? He says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body. I make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See how serious that Paul is about this? He has a concern that as he travels across the Mediterranean that there would be a lack of self-control in his life that churches say, not going to listen to you because look what you do. So he's going to discipline his body as well. Paul has an intense desire to finish this race with endurance. Do you see it? And Paul calls the Christian in Greece all the way to Branchton today to run the race with an aim, with a singular focus. So what does this look like? This looks like a boxer who doesn't just merely beat at the air. Right? Because who's going to be back at his body? How's the air going to be back in him? Right? This looks like physical discipline. Even an athlete, a secular non-Christian athlete, has to answer this question. Do you want your body's desires, and whatever they are for you, whatever they are for me, or for that athlete, do you want them to control you? Or do you want to control those desires, those impulses? The best athletes do not serve their bodies. And whatever desire just pops up throughout the day, they control their bodies to serve their singular focus. Perishable wreath, gold medal, glory for the country. And how much more should you, as the Christian, and whom Christ Jesus died for, and whom the Holy Spirit indwells, do this. You get Paul's logic here? You can do this with the game. Therefore, do it for the best of all games, the Christian life. Even non-Christian athletes know the body serves them. They don't serve the body. Just because your body tells you to do something doesn't mean you do it. 
but I fear that many American churchgoers, because the gospel is oftentimes convoluted here in America by what we do in these gatherings, maybe even some in our church are enslaved to the appetites of their bodies instead of using their bodies to express their enjoyment of Jesus, which is our life mission. As we begin to close now, I want us to go back to where we started, Galatians chapter 5. We looked at a big chunk of text. I'm not going to go through the text again. That was week one. I just want to point out verses 16 and 17. Let's look at it one more time together. Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit sets its desire against the flesh. They are in opposition to each other, so that you may not do the things that you please. There's three factors in this verse. Your body, the Holy Spirit, and who you really are. Do you get that? That you are not your body? It's even working against the things that you want to do? Do you see that? I hope so. This is the reality for every Christian. Despite the billboards, despite the social media ads, it is not all rainbows. It's not all sprinkles. All that glitters is not gold. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you, but you are still in human flesh. You have your fleshly desires, so do I. Therefore, the Christian life is a struggle between what your flesh wants, what the spirit inside of you wants. They're in opposition to each other. And Paul's reality is one of those things is going to win out. You're going to get to an end. You're going to get a wreath. You're going to get a medal. You are. No matter which path you choose. I don't believe in this Christianity stuff. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do even if it involves religion and being here. That will get you to an end. And walking by the Spirit is also going to get you to an end. One is going to win out. So we ask this. How do Christians fight? How do we fight? And Paul very clearly, from Galatians to Corinthians, teaches us that we make our bodies slaves to pleasure, but to the greatest pleasure the greater pleasure. And we do this by bringing those desires underneath the control of the Holy Spirit. So what does this look like? Let me bring it back and ask you this one more time. What is it that you really want? I mean, seriously. We've been doing this for some years now. What is it that you really want? What do you really want out of life? What really is your life mission? Some of you are like, I don't even know. You're aimless. Even athletes have a singular aim. But here's the thing. If you can answer that question, and if you received it, the very thing that you're, you're saying, your body is telling you, this is what you need. This is your mission. This is why you wake up every day. All right, let's just hypothesize you really got it. Would it encumber you? Would it entangle you from running the race to the end? Will that thing help or will it hurt in this race? The reality is, heritage, fruit is going to be produced in your life. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, 
your life is going to produce something. You are going to get to an end. What end will your desires bring you to if you don't yield them to the Holy Spirit? To bring your desires under the control of the Holy Spirit. And this begins right now as we begin to shift to our prayer. But give me a moment. To bring your desires under control of the Holy Spirit, you must ask the Holy Spirit to give you Jesus' ability that he displayed in the wilderness and that he displayed in the garden. That's what we need. That's what the Holy Spirit is creating in you and I. And by bringing your desires under the Holy Spirit's control over time, that's why we say words, actions, over time, over time, the Holy Spirit will create self-control in you, either to delay the gratification or in some instances to say, I'm done with it. I'm not doing it anymore. How many times have I told you just relationally that the things I struggled with in my teenage years when I first became a Christian, I don't struggle with today. Thank God. 15-year-old Joe and some things he struggled with. And the struggles in my 20s, Thank God, oh my goodness, thank God, are not my struggles today. And now, I can say this, I can say this, oh, I got the eye roll. The struggles of my 30s are not the struggles of today. But I'll be clear, I still have struggles today. And so do you. We all have those encumbrances, we all have those entanglements. So how do we respond today? Like an Olympic athlete. You need to look hard. I mean, that's what prayer is about. That's what congregational prayer is about in a couple minutes. That's why you have final moments and you just don't go to the Golden Corral after this. They're for you, for honest, hard reflection, where you look hard on your body, you look hard at your life. There are things that you and I are all attracted to that would weigh us down, and would entangle us if we were competing as Olympic athletes. As Christians, there are sins and sufferings that entangle and encumber us. doesn't matter if I'm a teenager Joe, 20s Joe, 30s Joe, or now 40s Joe. Jesus is the only one, whether I was 15, 25, 35, or when I get to the dreaded 45. Jesus is the only one who has run the race in such a way that he won. And his spirit is in you, and his spirit is also in me. This means that you do have the supernatural ability to say no to your body. You got that? You do have that ability. Because you are not your body. C.S. Lewis is right. You are not a body. You are a soul in a body. You get that? You are not your body. You are a soul waiting for Jesus to return where he is going to redeem and renew and glorify your body. And until then, we pray, Holy Spirit, help me run in such a way that I may get to the end that Jesus died to secure for me.